You're listening to Poetry Centered, the podcast that features recorded poetry readings from 1963 to today, curated and introduced by contemporary poets. These recordings come to you from VOCA, the audiovisual archive of the University of Arizona Poetry Center. I'm Julie Swarstad Johnson, and I'm here to welcome you to the third season of our show. Today, we're in the good hands of Francisco Aragon, a poet, translator, and literary curator. He edited the anthology The Wind Shifts, New Latino Poetry, and he's the author of three full-length collections, including his most recent, After Ruben, published in spring 2020. Francisco is the founder and director of the Letras Latinas Initiative at the University of Notre Dame. In this episode, he introduces poems that each embody a speaking voice, including direct addresses by Francisco X. Alarcón and Tom Gunn, as well as a mythic monologue by Denise Levertov. Francisco closes the episode with a poetic address of his own. Francisco, thank you so much for being our host today. Greetings. Saludos. My name is Francisco Aragón, and today I am speaking to you from Arlington, Virginia. Hernando Ruiz de Alarcón was a Mexican priest who, in the 17th century, documented indigenous practices of everyday life. He gathered these in a work he wrote in 1629, titled Treatise on the Heathen Superstitions that today live among the Indians native to this new Spain. The work was meant as a kind of handbook for local priests so they could familiarize themselves with the customs they sought to suppress. The irony is that thanks to Ruiz de Alarcón's efforts, detailed knowledge of indigenous culture survives to this day. The poem you are about to hear is by the late Chicano poet Francisco X. Alarcón. It was recorded on February 8, 2008. It is from, arguably, his most well-known book, Snake Poems, an Aztec Invocation, published in 1992. The English version of the poem begins, It was you you were looking for, Hernando. In other words, Alarcón is directly addressing his namesake. Francisco, my tocayo, as we say of someone who shares our first name, was a dear friend and mentor of many years. And I remember that he showed me snake poems in manuscript in a San Francisco cafe in the late 1980s. He had spent time in Mexico on a Fulbright and taught himself Nahuatl so that he could translate a selection of the chants and spells that make up most of snake poems. Think of this piece as a kind of bittersweet homage to someone he considers a poetic ancestor. Francisco X. Alarcón titles his poem Hernando Ruiz de Alarcón, 
1587-1646. You'll hear it in Spanish and then in English. Dear listener, fasten your seatbelts. Hernando Ruiz Alarcón, 1587-1646. Eras tú el que buscabas Hernando, hurgando en los rincones de las casas semillas empolvadas de Oloruiki. Eras tú al que engañabas y aprendías. Eras tú el que preguntaba y respondía. Donde quiera mirabas moros con trinchete y ante tanto dolor, tanta muerte, un conquistador, conquistado fuiste. Sacerdote, soñador, cruz parlante, condenando te salvaste al transcribir acaso sin saber el cielo. Soy yo el de tu cepa. El de tu sueño, este es el sonte del monte, tu mañana, tu mañana, tu mañana. Hernando Ruiz Alarcón, 1587-1646. It was you, you were looking for Hernando, searching every house corner for some dusty seeds of Ololuki. It was you who you tricked and apprehended. It was you who both questioned and responded. Everywhere you saw moors with long knives. And in front of so much sorrow, so much death, you became a conquered conqueror. Priest, dreamer, speaking cross, condemning. You saved yourself by transcribing, maybe without even knowing the heavens. I am from your tree, from your dream. This sensual bird in the wilderness, your tomorrow, your tomorrow, your tomorrow. And we are the tomorrow of our ancestors in many ways. And, and so I was empowering myself to travel yeah, and to see this tradition. The first time I encountered this poem was at a reading in a small independent bookstore, footsteps away from the 24th and Mission BART station in San Francisco. It was also the first time I saw its author read poetry. I was a college sophomore at the time and knew that he taught on my campus, but I didn't yet know what he looked like. A trim man, with close-cropped silver hair, wearing tight leather pants, strode to the podium. So this is Tom Gunn, I remember thinking. Among the pieces he read that night was To Isherwood Dying, which would go on to be included in The Man with Night Sweats published in 1992. Christopher Isherwood, like Tom Gunn, was another British-born writer I discovered in college. And, like Gunn, Isherwood made his home later in life in my native California. The poem begins, It could be, Christopher, from your leafed-in house in Santa Monica, where you lie and wait, 
You hear outside a sound resume, fitful, anonymous, of Berlin fifty years ago, as autumn days got late. Like many of the elegiac poems that populate the man with night sweats, this one deploys, as you'll hear more abundantly, elegant, subtle, and intricately delayed end rhymes. And, like the first piece I introduced, in this one the poet is also addressing his subject in the second person. The difference is that Gunn knew Isherwood, and you'll get to hear in his opening remarks how well he knew him, as well as an endearing observation about him. This recording of Tom Gunn reading to Isherwood Dying is from September 10th, 1986. Here we go. The end of last year, uh, the end of Christmas week, in fact, I heard that Christopher Isherwood was dying in his 70s. Uh, I'd known him fairly well in a way that a great many people knew him fairly well. Uh, he was very kind to me as a young man when I was about 25. And I thought, oh boy, I must be one of his best friends. And then I noticed that um, many other people regarded him in just the same way. He had a very wonderful way of seeming, uh, of being all attentive to what you were saying. Once I, I noticed this when I was in a restaurant with him, and there was a group of us speaking to him. And I noticed that um, the way, normally when we're speaking to to uh, another person, our eyes stray around a little. We look at the person's mouth. We look over their shoulder. We we're listening, but we don't we, we don't give all our attention to that person. But uh, Isherwood, when he was speaking to you, devoted himself to you, whoever you were. That was why we all thought we were his best friends. <laughs> um, I was uh, very I was very sad to feel to, to hear that he was dying. Uh, and I, uh, I, I, usually I don't write a, a poem on an occasion like this, as, 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 as I did. I wrote, wrote this very, very soon. And I recalled, I'm making reference in, in this poem to the famous first page of his most famous book, The Berlin Stories, where he's um, in 1933 or something like that. Oh, no, 1930, earlier than that. He's um, living in a rented room in um, Berlin. To Isherwood dying. It could be, Christopher, from your leafed-in house in Santa Monica where you lie and wait. You hear outside a sound resume, fitful, anonymous, of Berlin fifty years ago as autumn days got late. The whistling to their girls from young men who stood in the deep, dim street below dingy facades which crumbled like a cliff, behind which, in a rented room, you listened, wondering if, by chance, one might be whistling up for you, adding unsentimentally, it could not possibly be. Now, it's a stricter vigil that you hold, and from the canyon's palms and crumbled gold, it could be, possibly, 
you hear a single whistle call, come out, come out into the cold, courting, insistent and impersonal. Being based in the San Francisco Bay Area, Berkeley in particular, in the latter half of the 1980s, offered me a rich range of aesthetics to learn from. For example, it was Tom Gunn who introduced me to the work of Robert Duncan. And it was through delving into Duncan that I became aware of Denise Levertov. In fact, this duo of Duncan and Levertov embodied in those years, at least for me, this notion of the musical possibilities of language, including their non-traditional use of rhyme. One of my favorite poems in the English language is the one you'll be hearing next, which was recorded on October 9, 1973. In it, a tree takes on human-like agency and delivers an extended and, at times, ecstatic monologue in what I can only describe as a myth-inspired tour de force. The speaker, that is, the tree, tells the story of how it became love-drunk on the sounds of Orpheus's voice. At one point, the tree sings. It was a wave that bathed me as if rain rose from below and around me instead of falling. And later, fire he sang that trees fear, and I, a tree, rejoiced in its flames. So, gentle listener, settle in and make yourself comfortable as you hear Denise Levertov sing her song, A Tree Telling of Orpheus. Thank you. You're a magnificently large audience. Thank you all for coming. Um, I'm going to begin with a poem called A Tree Telling of Orpheus. White dawn, stillness. When the rippling began, I took it for sea wind coming to our valley with rumors of salt, of treeless hope. But the white fog didn't stir. The leaves of my brothers remained outstretched, unmoving. Yet the rippling drew nearer, and then my own outermost branches began to tingle almost as if fire had been lit below them too close, and their twig tips were drying and curling. Yet I was not afraid, only deeply alert. 
I was the first to see him, for I grew out on the pasture slope beyond the forest. He was a man, it seemed. The two moving stems, the short trunk, the two arm branches, flexible, each with five leafless twigs at their ends, and the head that's crowned by brown or gold grass, bearing a face not like the beaked face of a bird, more like a flower's. He carried a burden made of some cut branch bent while it was green, strands of a vine tight-stretched across it. From this, when he touched it, and from his voice, which unlike the wind's voice had no need of our leaves and branches to complete its sound, came the ripple. But it was now no longer a ripple. He had come near and stopped in my first shadow. It was a wave that bathed me as if rain rose from below and around me instead of falling. And what I felt was no longer a dry tingling. I seemed to be singing as he sang. I seemed to know what the lark knows. All my sap was mounting towards the sun that by now had risen. The mist was rising. The grass was drying. Yet my roots felt music moisten them deep under earth. He came still closer, leaned on my trunk. The bark thrilled like a leaf still folded. Music. There was no twig of me not trembling with joy and fear. Then, as he sang, it was no longer sounds only that made the music. He spoke, and as no tree listens, I listened, and language came into my roots, out of the earth into my bark, out of the air, into the pores of my greenest shoots, gently as dew, and there was no word he sang, but I knew its meaning. He told of journeys, of where sun and moon go while we stand in dark, of an earth journey he dreamed he would take some day, deeper than roots. He told of the dreams of men, wars, passions, griefs, and I, a tree, understood words. Ah, it seemed my thick bark would split like a sapling's that grew too fast in the spring when a late frost wounds it. Fire, he sang, that trees fear, and I, a tree, rejoiced in its flames. New buds broke forth from me, though it was full summer. As though his lyre, now I knew its name, were both frost and fire, its cords flamed up to the crown of me. I was seed again. I was fern in the swamp. I was coal. And at the heart of my wood, so close I was to becoming man or a god. There was a kind of silence, a kind of sickness, something akin to what men call boredom, something 
The poem descended a scale, a stream over stones that gives to a candle a coldness in the midst of its burning, he said. It was then when in the blaze of his power that reached me and changed me, I thought I should fall my length, that the singer began to leave me, slowly moved from my noon shadow to open light, words leaping and dancing over his shoulders back to me, rivery sweep of lyre tones becoming slowly again ripple. And I, in terror, but not in doubt of what I must do, in anguish, in haste, wrenched from the earth, root after root, the soil heaving and cracking, the moss tearing asunder, and behind me the others, my brothers, forgotten since dawn. In the forest they too had heard and were pulling their roots in pain out of a thousand years' layers of dead leaves, rolling the rocks away, breaking themselves out of their depths. You would have thought we would lose the sound of the lyre, of the singing, so dreadful the storm sounds were, where there was no storm, no wind, but the rush of our branches moving, our trunks breasting the air. But the music, the music reached us. Clumsily, stumbling over our own roots, rustling our leaves in answer, we moved, we followed. All day we followed, uphill and down. We learned to dance, for he would stop where the ground was flat, and words, he said, taught us to leap and to wind in and out around one another in figures the liar's measure designed. The singer laughed till he wept to see us. He was so glad. At sunset, we came to this place I stand in, this knoll with its ancient grove that was bare grass then. In the last light of that day, his song became farewell. He stilled our longing. He sang our sun-dried roots back into earth, watered them, all-night rain of music so quiet we could almost not hear it in the moonless dark. By dawn he was gone. We have stood here since, in our new life. We have waited. He does not return. It is said he made his earth journey and lost what he sought. It is said they felled him and cut up his limbs for firewood. And it is said his head still sang and was swept out to sea singing. Perhaps he will not return. But what we have lived comes back to us. We see more. We feel as our rings increase, something that lifts our branches, that stretches our furthest leaf tips further. 
the wind, the birds, do not sound poorer but clearer, recalling our agony and the way we danced, the music. I had the privilege and pleasure of taking a poetry workshop with Tom Gunn when I was a student at UC Berkeley. In one of our office hour visits, I learned that, like me, his favorite Christopher Isherwood novel was A Single Man. The last time I reread it, I encountered and plucked a fragment of language that I told myself I'd use in a poem one day. That day arrived in 2010 and resulted in Poem with a Phrase of Isherwood, which I'd now like to read for you. Like two of the poems we've heard, mine also employs the second person to address someone, specifically a former governor of Arizona. It's a political poem in that it critiques Jan Brewer's anti-immigrant, anti-Latinx legislation known as the Show Me Your Papers Law. Around the time the poem was written, Francisco X. Alarcón, author of the first poem you heard, created the Facebook page Poets Responding to SB 1070. My piece first appeared there before Alarcón accepted it for an anthology he co-edited, which was published in 2016, the year Francisco passed away. And so, Christopher Isherwood's phrase functions as a refrain as I address Jan Brewer. Here we go. Poem with a Phrase of Isherwood, 2010, Arizona. Cruelty is sensual and stirs. You, Governor, your name echoing the sludge beneath your city's streets. It spurs the pleasure you take whenever your mouth nears a mic defending your law, your wall. Cruelty is sensual and stirs you, Governor. We've noticed your face, its contortions and delicate sneer. Times you're asked to cut certain ribbons, visit a dusty place you'd rather avoid out of the heat. Cruelty is sensual and stirs you, Governor. The vision of your state, something you treasure in secret. Though we've caught a glimpse in the jowls of your sheriff, bulldog 
who doubles as your heart. The sheriff in question is the infamous Joe Arpeo. You can find this poem in my book, After Ruben, published in 2020 by Red Hand Press. And that concludes our time together. Once again, this is Francisco Aragon. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much, Francisco, for hosting us today and for sharing poems and poets that have meant so much to you. Listeners, thank you as always for being here. You have new episodes to look forward to coming up, including one in two weeks, March 24th, hosted by Allison Adele Hedgecock. We hope you'll join us then. Thanks again for being with us. Poetry Centered is a project of the University of Arizona Poetry Center, home to a world-class library collection of more than 80,000 items related to contemporary poetry in English and English translation. Located on the campus of the University of Arizona in Tucson, the Poetry Center library and buildings are housed on the indigenous homelands of the Tohono O'odham people. Poetry Centered is supported by the work of Diana Marie Delgado, Tyler Meyer, and I'm your producer, Julie Swarstad-Johnson. Explore VOCA, the Poetry Center's audiovisual archive, online at voca.arizona.edu.